You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this webinar tonight on pediatric and adolescent management in the time of COVID-19. I'm Bob Lumen, founding physician and executive medical director at the UBC Division of Continuing Professional Development. This webinar is the eighth in a series of COVID-19 webinars that UBC CPD within the UBC Faculty of Medicine is delivering to support a multidisciplinary healthcare audience in urban and rural practice during the COVID-19 pandemic. Please be aware that aside from providing this webinar and others related to COVID-19, we're continuously reviewing available education to create a resource hub of current and reliable resources about COVID-19 being offered by UBC CPD as well as other education providers. I'd now like to pass you over to Dr. Ron Goldman, who will be both moderating and answering some of your questions tonight, along with other members of this excellent panel. Ron, over to you. Please introduce yourself and take it away. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Blumen, for this introduction. Very kind, and uh, we're very fortunate to be joining this webinar together with UBC CPD that organizes. I want to thank Dr. Blumen and want to thank Stephanie for organizing this. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy this evening. We have an outstanding panel. Uh, soon they will introduce themselves, Dr. Tom McLaughlin, Dr. Susan Albershine, Dr. Matthew Carvana, and Dr. Janet Boyd. They will introduce themselves and talk a little bit about COVID-19. The way we're going to instruct the evening is five minutes for each of the members of this panel to tell you what we know or think or read about COVID-19 in children and adolescents, as well as in neonates. And then um, it's going to be a pleasure to accept your questions through Slido and answer them, whoever is the most uh, appropriate person in this panel. Don't hesitate to ask any questions that you have. Um, those are important, and we know that many of you, many of the 621 people on this call now, are taking care of neonates, children, adolescents, and young adults, which are sometimes older children. Uh, just two minutes ago, I heard uh, the neighbors here in the, in the neighborhood cheering to healthcare workers. That's all of you on the other side of the uh, channel. And uh, all this panel is thankful to everything you're doing for patients, especially those in the um, uh, children and adolescent age groups. So I'll start by telling you that I'm an emergency pediatrician I work at BC Children's in Vancouver and enjoy a practice that is high acuity, uh, as well as dealing with children that have chronic illnesses with acute illness on top of that. Uh, we're very fortunate, I think, that COVID-19 did not affect children to the same extent as adults. We know that from the data from Canada. As of an hour ago, uh, the data shows that there are less than 900 children that were diagnosed as positive COVID-19 in Canada. To the best that I know, uh, there were some admissions, some ICU admissions, but no death in the pediatric population. Even when you look at global data, out of 2 million that were diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, 
very uh, few children needed ICU admission or uh, deaths were documented. There were a few, uh, but we don't know exactly if they had chronic illnesses or immune compromised state as the background. I, you know, I've, I've been a pediatrician during SARS uh, almost 20 years ago and during H1N1, um, yet this takes all of them together. This is such an interesting uh, phenomena which have shaped all of us in British Columbia and elsewhere, and we're facing very different practice, whether you're a family physician, a nurse practitioner, a nurse, uh, or someone else who's supporting people throughout this process and through this time, this is by far the most interesting. As an, as an academic who's doing research as well on COVID-19, I'm very interested to see what are we learning about children. And I can tell you that the research so far, which is very limited, has shown us that children are not just small adults, as we always say in pediatrics. Children do encounter and do have COVID-19 or uh, uh, coronavirus infection. They are definitely contracting the illness, but somehow the symptoms that they show have been enlarged, seem to be minor compared to what adults or those with immune compromised state are uh, having. When they have symptoms, it does include fever, dry cough, rhinorrhea, sore throat, and in 10% of children, some diarrhea or vomiting. Those obviously can mimic many other viral illnesses or any uh, illnesses in childhood. And it's really hard to differentiate between coronavirus infection, COVID-19, or other coronavirus infections we see sometimes, as well as just the regular bread and butter pediatrics, influenza, RSV, and other infections. We know that um, children may have been carriers. One of the reasons we think that British Columbia wasn't affected as much as other parts of the country or uh, countries other than Canada is the fact that British Columbia went on a break from school for spring break relatively early. And this may have reduced the spread because we think that children have contracted COVID-19 uh, virus, have not been as sick, but may have brought the infection home and had been a source in many times for this. We don't know that for sure. There's no good serology yet or antibody testing, but that's kind of one of the theories uh, why BC is better than other parts of the country. We know that if children do have symptoms, um, many of them do not need any testing for uh, coronavirus. The reason is that their symptoms are really mild, and we suggest that anyone uh, isolate themselves, be in social uh, distance from one another, and avoid uh, leaving the house as much as possible. This is true for children, whether you test them or not. We also know that any kind of blood tests or x-rays are not needed, not reliable, and doesn't really help you in the diagnosis of COVID-19 among children. We um, do know that uh, there is no therapy for COVID-19, neither for adults, anything that is really evidence-based or sufficient. And you read the news just like me hearing about few suggestions, either from politicians or from companies that suggest that there is a potential for therapy for COVID-19. We in children in pediatrics do not know that there is a therapy that is known to be effective, and neither prophylactically to give children. 
So basically the treatment for children and adolescents is supportive. You will hear from panel members uh, right now and afterwards with your questions um, on more specifics about studies that are ongoing worldwide, including in Canada, as well as uh, supportive therapy and what that means. So I'll stop here uh, with this uh, short introduction on uh, coronavirus infection in children and adolescents, as well as COVID-19. And, uh, and I would like to introduce Dr. Tom McLaughlin. He's a pediatrician at BC Children's, a, cr a clinical instructor in the University of British Columbia. He's in the Department of Pediatrics. And Tom, I'll uh, hand over to you, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Goldman. Um, I'm Tom McLaughlin, and um, as, uh, as Dr. Goldman was mentioning, I work at the inpatient unit um, at BC Children's Hospital. I'll just share my screen so that you can see um, my very brief slides. Um, so uh, this is me. My, my main role at the inpatient unit, aside from providing clinical care, is to uh, is to uh, be in charge of the operations. And so this, is, this has been obviously a very heavy period of time to think about how we're going to be changing our clinical operations in light of COVID in our pediatric inpatient setting. And I think this has a lot of learning points for everyone throughout the talk. Um, so first of all, uh, as Dr. Holmes was mentioning, who are the children who have COVID? What do they look like and how prevalent are they? And specifically on the inpatient side, I think it's important to know just as Dr. Goldman was mentioning that for whatever reason, children are less likely to have severe disease than adults. So uh, as of an update two days ago, there were 11 children in inpatient uh, settings across the entire country, that's infants, children, and adolescents, and only one patient in an intensive care unit. None of those patients were in British Columbia. Um, and so this speaks to the fact that this really is a low number of children who will need inpatient settings. And the large majority of children that you will see who may have COVID, you may never know they have COVID because they go home without being tested and they're likely to have mild symptoms. Some of the children who have presented to inpatient settings, just to sort of wrap your head around a couple of examples um, from other settings, since there have not been any children at BC Children. Uh, there was a patient in Ontario who was a two-year-old child who presented to the emergency department with fever, runny nose, a mild cough. They were tested for COVID and sent home. And then a couple of days later, they were found to be COVID positive. And when, uh, when that child was followed up by public health, they had no negative consequences. Another child in another province who presented with typical respiratory symptoms, hypoxia, cough, fever, increased work of breathing, and was admitted for a couple of days to hospital for what seemed like a viral pneumonia picture before being, um, being discharged with only oxygen treatment required. Interestingly, in higher prevalence settings, which does not currently apply to British Columbia, there is the issue of inpatients being admitted with COVID for something other than COVID. So there is a patient admitted in another province for appendicitis who was found to be COVID positive. So I think these illustrate the fact that um, it's possible to have a wide spectrum of illness. As Dr. Goldman was mentioning, children who are admitted to hospital, if they are being admitted for COVID, tend to have fever, dry cough, viral symptoms. Of note, children are less likely to have any one of those 
80% with fever, 50% with fever. Um, but as children are more sick, they are more likely to have those symptoms. Um, and then importantly, there is not really an obvious um, age distribution. There is potentially some number of infants, which is which is higher to be the case in, in neonates, and that might actually be the most contactable. But I'll leave that. And then I think the second thing is, you know, what, what do you do? Like, if you have a child who has COVID or who might have COVID, how do you actually deal with that? Um, this slide, I think, is just to highlight the BC Children's EPOC website, which has a variety of COVID resources on it. Um, and as you can see, it, it has a variety of resources in, in a variety of domains. Um, and I would invite you to go to this website, and then we can also send around a few other pediatric-specific um, and really, I think that the main sort of macro level point that I'll make about managing sick children is that it's largely the same as managing other children with respiratory illness, with caveat of careful attention to exposure um, and infection control. Um, and mostly that things beyond that should generally be left to do studies and So. The second thing that I'll say at a macro level is we're likely to be in some sort of situation where you may have COVID patients for a long period of time. We could be looking at 18 months, two years before we have a vaccine and before this is no longer potentially prevalent in the community. And throughout all of that, you're going to see tons and tons of kids we've always seen who have non-COVID illness. And what we don't want to do is to not treat those kids well. Um, and so we need to find a way to treat kids well for while also being mindful of potential persistence. So a few specific bullet points that have come up either in the literature or in the news or whatnot. One is around asthmatics uh, with COVID or without COVID and what you do with respect to inhaled corticosteroids and oral steroids during acute uh, exacerbations of asthma. And really the point is to do what you would normally do. So give oral steroids if a child has a severe enough exacerbation that they need that. Do not withhold inhaled corticosteroids from a child who warrants inhaled corticosteroids. Um, because again, you're much more likely to see a child having negative consequences from asthma than from COVID, given our current prevalence of COVID. Similarly, with NSAIDs and ibuprofen, although with the ibuprofen studies that exist, they're, they're of poor enough quality that there really is not really any evidence to withhold NSAIDs. And then secondarily, there's in your practices, you're probably going to see countless children with fevers, and if you withhold antibiotics from them because of the potential for COVID, then you're likely to be much more vulnerable. And there are experimental treatments happening uh, with antivirals, with hydroxychloroquine, with azithromycin, with convalescent plasma, with all sorts of things. The reality is that our numbers are fairly small, and these are likely to be restricted to sick children in is unlikely to percolate out into common practice um, in the short term anyways. And so I would not recommend using experimental treatments without the involved guidance of pediatric subspecialists. And then what really is different is the cohorting. So in terms of uh, keeping yourself safe, making sure you have appropriate personal protective equipment when you're seeing any child or I would imagine adult who has viral symptoms. If you're working in an inpatient setting, making sure that your setting has appropriate cohorting of patients. Um, for example, some inpatient settings have created 
hot zone, warm zone, cold zone. These sorts of things should be applying to children as well, even if they are uh, not in as high numbers of, of COVID positive patients. Because especially in an emergency department, it may be, given our rate of testing, that there are children with COVID who are coming through with mild symptoms and then never being tested. Uh, so you do need to treat uh, viral children right now who have infectious symptoms that, that potentially having COVID and being mindful of that from a personal protective equipment perspective. Dr. Goldman talked about mostly not testing children who should be tested in a variety of settings. So the, I think the high level is children should be tested um, right now if they are going to be admitted to hospital or if they are likely to be admitted to hospital. And in that likely category would include children with medical complexity and children with significant immunodeficiencies. So you might see an adolescent who has Crohn's disease. And the reason why you would want to test them when you see them with viral symptoms for COVID is that if they were to worsen over the next couple of days, it's valuable information to have that. Whereas a previously healthy child who has viral symptoms who is sent home is unlikely to be admitted and that will likely change as testing capacity ramps up and as we get into a phase of the illness where we're trying to very aggressively monitor prevalence rates, but right now, uh, that is not feasible. Um, I think that is most of what I was going to say, and then I think that um, I'll leave time for questions. That's great. Thank you very much, Tom. That was a great uh, introduction and explanation on hospital-based pediatrics and issues around COVID-19. The next uh, panel member, Dr. Susan Albersheim, uh, who is a neonatologist and uh, an expert in neonatal intensive care. And uh, Susan, please go ahead and tell us about COVID-19 and neonates and maybe in their mothers. You're muted, Susan. There. Thank you. Um, I think the, the important thing that I wanted to say most important is that neonatal care as such hasn't changed all that much because of COVID-19, uh, except for the use of uh, PPEs, except for the social distancing and how that affects rounds in the nursery, as well as limitations to visitation. But our knowledge and understanding of COVID-19 is changing rapidly. And um, our understanding of the pathophysiology is something that we're, and, and trying to understand the immunological aspects is really something that's just ramping up. So what I say today may be wrong by tomorrow morning. Um, now, at this time, there is lack of available data on the outcomes of pregnancies uh, and other than the fact that there are some um, premature labor, either that's iatrogenic or um, uh, it has been reported just spontaneous premature labor um, as the out adverse outcomes. However, um, even though the, as was mentioned, the disease burden appears to be mild or moderate and not much in the severe category. The numbers are small, but what we know to date is that there do not appear to be congenital abnormalities related to it. And um, uh, even 
it appears to be something there is horizontal transmission, um, but vertical transmission is a questionable area. So uh, there are a couple of documented cases in the literature where they say the IgM is positive, which means that it has to have come from mom. Uh, but people do question whether the, the uh, testing itself might be erroneous. And um, uh, it appears that that's still a question. If it is, it's a small number that have had vertical transmission. So mostly it's horizontal transmission we're concerned about in the neonate. Therefore, most babies are not born COVID positive. Um, but what you're concerned about in the delivery room is if the mother particularly has an aerosol um, procedure that you're concerned about her, that she's intubated, that she's going to be intubated at the time of delivery. And that's what uh, the concern for your attending the delivery uh, and resuscitating the baby. But there have not seemed to be the need for more resuscitation. So the fact that a baby is born to a mother that's COVID positive is not a reason to have a full resuscitation team in there. Actually, the opposite, because you want to uh, limit the exposure of healthcare professionals. And if you can't do that two-meter distancing, uh, it would be helpful, if at all possible, to have just one person in the delivery room to take the baby take the baby outside to another room for the resuscitation. Um, as far as other aspects in the delivery room, uh, generally speaking, we talk, uh, we, we feel that it's, it's important to have um, delayed cord clamping, and there's not any evidence that this has caused adverse outcomes, and there are a lot of positives related to delayed cord clamping. And therefore, we would at this point say that that is something we would recommend if possible. Um, as far as uh, what you need to wear for the baby, it is if you if the risk is low, uh, but the communicability of the SARS-CoV-2 is high, and therefore we say mother's positive, PPEs in the delivery room, but. Um, Really, only if it's there's aerosol generating procedures should you be thinking about the um, N95. As far as in the nursery, uh, that then we're talking about possibly a different situation, and therefore we're concerned if there is there's a respiratory problem, not at the time of birth, but developing afterwards, that it would be important to um, use. Uh, PPEs, including N95, it's aerosol generating, which includes CPAP, which includes intubation. Um, as far as uh, feeding, breast milk is, is still considered to be the best option. Uh, I think we learned our lesson with HIV, uh, that there were, that people were saying uh, things that, that were highly, they were highly anxious. Generally speaking here, there have been no, um, in the cases that we have that have been tested in the breast milk, we have not found it in the breast milk, but we're saying that probably it's uh, good hand washing, a mask on a mother who is um, uh, positive, and uh, certainly wash, wash the equipment. 
some of the uh, recommendations are with the use of many different kinds of cleansers, uh, soap and water is probably adequate. And um, we would say that uh, certainly in Canada, the, as well as the World Health Organization, is saying that breastfeeding is recommended with the proper uh, mask and, and hand hygiene, even in a symptomatic mother. But in the U.S., uh, the CDC there is saying that it's after a conversation, it's a shared decision between moms uh, uh, and uh, the healthcare team as to what, uh, if that's going to be recommended. If, if breastfeeding isn't going to happen as far as um, at the breast, uh, we would encourage uh, moms to be pumping. You have a very sick baby, you certainly could be using, uh, if a baby required a, ventilation, a ventilator, you could be using an NG tube and use breast milk. We often use donor milk on our very sick babies. Uh, latest recommendations that are coming out uh, uh, are number one, because of the thermal pasteurization of the milk, as well as they take good history. Uh, and if anybody is COVID positive, they'd say um, a month before donating milk, people feel that it is quite safe to use donor milk um, in babies that uh, are appropriate for that. So at this, at this moment, I think the most important thing is having respiratory problems in the newborn is not uncommon. Um, and therefore, uh, I would be thinking of non-COVID to begin with when you have a newborn that presents with respiratory problems, particularly right at birth. Uh, keep your differential wide uh, because of concerns that were mentioned earlier as well, that, that you could be missing important treatable uh, conditions. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Oliversheim. Interesting, good, good to know all those facts and ideas. Uh, we're moving on, Dr. Matthew Caruana. He's a consultant pediatrician at BC Children and also a general pediatrician at Fairmont Pediatrics in Vancouver. Uh, Matt, please introduce yourself and tell us about COVID-19 in the community. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, like Ron was saying, my name is Matt Caruana and I'm a general pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And I think I have a bit of a unique perspective because I split my time, like Ron was saying, I'm about half time in the hospital at BC Children's working with Tom doing acute inpatient pediatric care. And then I spent half my time in the community and really that split between the Fairmont Pediatric Clinic and also the Richer Initiative, which is our social pediatric program through BC Children's Hospital, working in some of the more vulnerable communities um, around downtown Vancouver. And um, I think what I want to most impress upon people is that with one foot firmly planted in these two communities, what I've seen so far or what I've experienced is that I've been generally reassured about what I've seen in the inpatient kind of acute care world, kind of what Tom and Ron alluded to. I'm very concerned by the possible downstream effects of this epidemic, this pandemic on children and youth. And I just want to um, impress upon everybody that I think the most important thing that my colleagues in the community can do is provide really quality care to children and families through this time because that's, I think, where we're really going to see this hit children. I, I don't think it's going to be um, acute direct effects. I think it's going to be the downstream effects. And for anyone that's interested, there's a fantastic article that was in uh, The Atlantic a couple weeks ago. The title is The Kids Aren't All Right. And it was looking at um, what happened to children um, around Louisiana post-Hurricane Katrina and predictions around how this might affect children post-COVID. So um, 
I think that's my biggest point. Just for a couple other things in brief that I think could be relevant. I think a lot of people are probably interested in what pediatricians are seeing in clinics right now. And I would say that we're still figuring this out much like probably everybody else is. I would say um, from the onset of the pandemic in early to mid-March, typically we've been prioritizing seeing newborns, so usually those under three months, and that's reflected in a recommendation by the Canadian Pediatric Society. We're still trying to see children um, in person who are medically complex, so of multi-system disease, or who are considered medically frail, so at high risk of admission to hospital, um, or kind of more severe outcomes or passing away. Um, and then we're trying to see urgent medical consults, and again, that definition is rapidly evolving and will be different from provider to provider. Um, one thing that's really important is if you are doing a referral and you have the capacity to see a child and do a physical examination in person, it's really helpful for us to have that reported physical exam to help us decide for things like murmurs and tone, like how urgent a referral is. And we might be reaching out to you to try to get more um, input to you as to how severe or how concerned you are, because it really helps us triage as we try to balance, again, social distancing with providing quality care. And I think I was talking to Tom earlier, I think we're hitting an inflection point where we're going to need to start having those discussions at a higher level and figuring that out because I think we've probably been postponing a lot of care that's important up till now because we didn't know. And we're hitting a point where this is going to be going on for a couple months and we need to figure out how are we going to see and care for these families properly. A um, couple other points in brief. I'm by no means an infectious disease expert or an expert in vaccinology. But I can tell you that I reached out to the head of our vaccine evaluation center at BC Children's Hospital and got the most recent recommendations by the CDC. Effectively, vaccines are considered an essential service, so they should be prioritized in outpatient clinics as an essential service. Uh, that being said, there's specific guidance that the first immunization series from zero to 12 months, or I guess two to 12 months, it should be considered kind of absolutely mandatory, so children should be receiving those vaccines. I think it was appropriate in the first couple of weeks of COVID again, back in March, to defer them for the sake of social distancing, but now they are being seen as an essential service. So um, we really appreciate the efforts of our family physician colleagues in particular in helping to make sure infants are vaccinated. Um, we can speak a little bit later if there's time about prioritizing other vaccines, but I think I'll postpone that um, for a little bit later maybe in our conversation. Um, as I mentioned, I think Jeanette and I will probably overlap with a lot of our thoughts based on what we were brainstorming. I'm seeing Jeanette nod along to some of the things I was saying. Um, just a pitch as somebody that works with a lot of uh, vulnerable families or like vulnerable families, however you wanted to find them. Um, often family docs are the people that know folks the best. And so if you have the opportunity to think about families that you think might be unduly or, or unequally impacted by this pandemic in terms of their kind of social impacts, um, and you have a chance to reach out to them, I think that would be one of the best things that you can do for the children in those families. Something that I've done in my clinical situations is come up with like a one to two page resource sheet for families. And a lot of those are now focused on um, kind of economic or financial support um, that I think might help families get through this time. And then a couple of kind of psychosocial mental health supports that I think will help families and children get through this time. Those resources do vary from community to community. So um, I'm not sure that there's going to be one catch-all that fits all, and I recognize that that's added work for already busy clinicians, but think about coming up with some way to easily share some simple resources for families, because a lot of people have been so overwhelmed by all the information coming out around the pandemic that it felt overwhelming to do things like apply for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or make sure that they're eligible for the increased Canada Child Benefit. Um, and, and these things can really help families that are in kind of dire financial straits to navigate this. 
my final pitch about vulnerable families is speaking with the community that I work in. The three areas that they're hearing that they're being most impacted are around food security, um, unequal access to technology. So we, a lot of us take for granted that I have a cell phone, a laptop, and a tablet that I can all connect to Zoom and we do telehealth um, or have these kinds of engagements. A lot of families may not have those things, and so see if there's ways to support them. A lot of community centers have been amazing in terms of stepping up and providing resources for families. A lot of schools are offering food support for families. So even if families previously didn't require food programs, schools might be able to support them now. So just really um, encourage families to reach out um, in those types of ways. And my final piece, I guess, and I think maybe Jeanette can build on this, is around um, youth, because I think I see a lot of youth and I get a lot of questions from youth. Um, my biggest kind of pearl for, uh, in general with youth is think of the big picture. And I tell parents a lot that they shouldn't be shooting for perfection. Um, Adults right now are kind of sitting around exchanging memes about how they're still wearing their PJs at 5 p.m. Um, and I don't think we should be expecting, therefore, teenagers to be getting up at 8 in the morning and hitting the books for their schoolwork because they're seeing what's being reflected by adults, both in their lives and on the internet. Um, I'm encouraging people to kind of strike a balance between targeting some semblance of routine and getting through some schoolwork and maintaining kind of their baseline practices, but also not dwelling on things. Um, and finally, if you are seeing youth, this is a great opportunity to have some good public health messaging around the potential dangers of inhalants, so cigarette smoking, vaping, dabbing, um, although there's probably no concrete evidence linking these outcomes to um, worse COVID disease, it's a good opportunity to at least bring it up with um, clients that might be kind of engaging in some of those behaviors. And finally, um, for some of the youth that I serve, we know that the kind of dual uh, public health emergencies of the COVID pandemic um, overlaid on the substance use um, uh, emergency that affects a lot of uh, families in BC, kind of really dire outcomes. So um, I am by no means an addictions expert. I'm not an adolescent medicine expert, but I think it's really important to recognize um, how this kind of overlay of two public health emergencies is affecting, in particular, some of our youth. And there are really excellent resources that I'll try to share with you guys, um, either through um, child and youth mental health or organizations like the Foundry. Um, that can help support youth that are um, dealing with those hardships. So I'll leave it at that and happy to answer more questions later. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Matt. As uh, many of you um, listening to this webinar, you uh, can tell that this information is good not only for your patients, but also for your home. And I will definitely use what Matt is suggesting with my three adolescents at home. We're moving to the last panel member, Dr. Janet Boyd, who's a family physician. Jenna, please introduce yourself and tell us about COVID-19 in, in the rural community. Um, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, was, I'm very glad to, that um, the family medicine perspective was included on, on this panel as well as the rural perspective. And, and I do know that there are some, some rural providers who are, who are participating um, on this. Um, a lot of what I was going to say from the perspective of family medicine, um, it was already mentioned by Matthew. Um, you know, absolutely, it is so critical for family physicians, and a lot of us are beginning to do this now, uh, for that proactive outreach to our vulnerable families and to provide that, that anticipatory guidance, not only around all of those issues that, that Dr. Kamwana had, had mentioned, but um, looking ahead, um, dealing with, with some of the, the anxiety and stressors that, that will be coming out of this for those families. The proactive outreach is greatly appreciated um, and anticipating. It's also validating and giving them permission to be seen. Um, a lot, there are so many stories of, of um, not only adults, um, but children as well, where families are worried either they don't, they don't want to burden the healthcare system with what they 
think maybe a minor ailment, they don't know how to connect with their primary care providers. Um, um, or they're fearful of, of seeking care. Um, so providing um, that, that reinforcing that importance of having your healthcare needs attended to, um, making phone calls to people that you trust um, in your healthcare team, um, your family physician in particular, if you're fortunate enough um, to have one or nurse practitioner, um, some, that trusted source of information. Um, and we could also very, really um, help them navigate the, the, what, we, what is really a, an infodemic um, helping them navigate what is what is true, what is authentic, and and not, and that is a significant role that that we as family physicians play, and and we're you know also quite reliant upon our pediatrician colleagues uh, to provide that guidance as well. Um, the adolescents, I'm fortunate enough to live in a rural community with adolescent children, um, and I am constantly using them to bring messages to their friends. Um, so take advantages of that. Um, um, but that direct outreach to them as well. Um, I'll even, if, I'm, if I happen to see them um, walking outside when I'm driving to the hospital, uh, you know, it's just a comment on, on how they're doing. Um, the, the other really important aspect is, is what I'm, you know, a lot of us are beginning to think of as, as the coming primary care surge as, as people have been neglecting issues um, or also those other really important things around preventative health, the well baby, well baby checks, um, chronic disease management that they just haven't been following through on um, or, or things that have been postponed. How can we make sure that those people aren't falling through the cracks? And, and certainly as we find our new normal and, and knowing that our new normal is going to be different at least for 18 to, tw to, to 24 months. How do we adapt our practices to meet the needs um, if it's virtual or not? And all of the issues is not everybody can access virtual. We think it's going to be very simple, but it's not. And you don't get the same sort of impact and nor does everybody have that, those sorts of resources. So planning for that primary care surge is going to be really, really critical and being proactive uh, about around that so nobody falls through the cracks. Um, from that rural perspective, um, the, the other thing just in terms of, of planning is, is just how few um, human resources we have. Um, what, you know, your pediatrician goes down when you only have one in your community. Um, how do the rest of us um, go in? How do you support your, your regional communities? And there's a lot of overlap. Oftentimes, the family physicians, um, you know, may be supporting your, your pediatrician um, and neonatal resuscitations, but they're also working in the emergency department um, and also having their community practice. So um, team-based care is really becoming eligible. And how can we move forward on that to meet the, the upcoming surge in, in primary care um, and some of that preventative health that we've been deferring at this point? Um, transport issues from a rural perspective are also really critical. Oftentimes, we're needing to make decisions a lot sooner uh, around transport or intubation simply because we the next level of care is several hours or, or sometimes even the next day away. Um, you know, certainly in the neonatal perspective, that's something to consider. Um, we don't always have a hot or cold don't because we only have a single nursery. Um, so there, there's a lot of logistical considerations that are uh, substantially different in the rural communities than, than there are uh, elsewhere that, that requires some unique and, and um, broader-based thinking. Um, and anticipatory guidance is, is so critical um, in that perspective. Um, I don't have much else to add um, other than um, just um, the, the, the adolescent cohort, I think we're going to have to be really paying close attention to, to some of the sequelae that are going to be coming out of it in terms of, of um, that social isolation that they've been going through and missing some of those really key um, milestones, um, both um, from a social perspective, but also that growth and development perspective, I think are going to be um, important to be aware of moving forward. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Janet, for uh, this uh, presentation. Um, we're uh, now completed with the round 
of discussion by the panel members, and I would like to go to questions that uh, you've been uh, posting on Slido. We've got quite a few questions, as many of you can see. We're going to try and address as many of them as possible. Uh, we'll try and, and go in between this panel so you can hear at least one, but maybe two members of this panel talking and responding to questions. You see the, the vast uh, knowledge of those members of this panel in the webinar, and we'll try and uh, provide questions, uh, provide answers to the questions to the best we can. Maybe we'll start with the first question. I'll try and answer that one and ask Tom as well to, to help me. So the, the question is, we hear that older uh, people are at higher risk to be affected by COVID-19. I would like to hear what is the risk for children um, and what are the symptoms that children present with? So um, let me try and answer that. We do know that children are also uh, sick with coronavirus and COVID-19. We just, as you heard from few members of this panel, uh, the symptomatology is much milder than we see in adults. One of the considerations and things we hear from our adult colleagues, especially in emergency departments, is that individuals get hypoxemic and uh, get significant respiratory distress that is relatively uh, fast. So they may be walking into an emergency department and unfortunately suffering from uh, deterioration uh, as they are in the emergency and need intubation and relatively quick intubation. Uh, with ICU admission and quite many complications. We have not seen this or have, report, have heard reports on similar deterioration in children, and the symptoms are just the symptoms that you see with other viral illnesses. Fever, it does not have to be high temperature, uh, as you see in some uh, viral infections. It's actually mild fever so far, as described in about 80% of children. Uh, dry cough. Um, I heard today that there is an app that you can uh, have someone cough onto your uh, phone and the phone will diagnose whether you have COVID-19 or not. I highly recommend not to use it yet until it's validated, but this is the type of uh, innovation that happens during pandemics like this. Rhinorrhea is very common in those children that were discovered to have COVID-19. Sore throat, just like adults, sore throat is, is a common finding. You must have heard that some uh, reports suggested that change in smell and taste have been uh, a presenting symptom of COVID-19 in adults. We don't have any evidence-based reports that the same had happened in children. I think for young children, it's, it's really hard to report their taste and smell uh, potential, but uh, something to be aware of. So what I'm saying is that the symptoms that are presented in children, which are about 5% of those tested so far for coronavirus, are similar to any viral illness, making the differentiation between just a common cold and COVID-19 very difficult, which is in a way a good thing. Uh, it means they recover well as well, but something that makes us clinicians uh, a bit leery of, uh, in saying that the clinical diagnosis is COVID-19. Tom, maybe I can ask you to uh, weigh in on this symptoms and whether children are higher or lower risk than adults. Uh, yes, no, I, I think you, I think you've essentially covered it. Um, and uh, it, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to over reassure people. There, there are children who are in hospital and who have been immediately intensive care, and across the world, there are there are children who have even passed away from COVID. But 
they are they're less likely than than in adults. And I think that that question about the phenotype of the rapidly deteriorating adult seems not to be as common in pediatrics. Um, as with so many things in pediatrics, it may be similar to adults, but way more vague um, and uh, and less likely to present classically. Um, and then um, and then I think the the most important population to think about are higher risk populations, uh, which would be children with medical complexity or frailty, and then um, children with underlying medical conditions that might predispose them to severe illness, so respiratory illness, cardiac illness, and immunosuppression being the biggest one. Thank you, Tom. So uh, you, you uh, maybe you can talk about the fact that some children with chronic illness are coming to the hospital where you are practicing. Um, is, is the manage of those children when they come to the hospital and unknown whether they have COVID-19 or not, is this different than any other day? Or year? Um, so, so it's mostly the same. I mean, in terms of whatever their disease entity, there's sort of targeted treatment to that. So if a child is hypoxic, they get oxygen. If they're presenting with an asthma attack, they get treated for that. Um, but uh, so that does not change. And the biggest change is about, um, is about PPE and cohorting and testing and uh, dealing Thank you. So maybe the same question I, I can ask Janet from a rural uh, setting perspective. Uh, what, uh, what do you think about the risk of becoming critically ill among children and how uh, rural physicians or, or rural healthcare providers should uh, think about children with COVID-19 or suspected to have that? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think Tom addressed it very well. Um, you know, given the, the um, low what we're assuming or we're seeing so far is that there's a fairly low prevalence in the community so chances are if a if a child is, is presenting with with a respiratory illness it's more than likely something other than covid and you, you need to be treating and responding accordingly um, um you know, in our emergency departments, you know, it, it is mostly around those those precautions around PPE and and the cohorting that you know it delays it, it does delay care. Um, you know, if 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 you're anticipating needing to to perhaps um, do an intubation to to stabilize a, a patient, it takes much longer. Um, and then also transport. If you are needing to go to a higher level of care, you're you're going to be needing to also be looking at how do you have the the manpower and the facilities to support um, that that very ill um, child uh, meaningfully in a way that still protects your, your staff. So it, it, as I mentioned earlier, it's a lot of logistical um, aspects, but the underlying message is all, ultimately it, it probably is something other than COVID that you need to be addressing um, um, appropriately. Um, you know, certainly from a family medicine perspective um, and, and our emergency department perspective, we're very fortunate to have a, a pediatrician available. Um, but when, when she isn't available, then, then we're, we're very rel um, reliant upon our um, higher level of care colleagues at places like BC Children's and, and, and um, their guidance. And I think that that's the biggest message is just appreciating that we, we don't have the luxury of a lot of staff. We don't always have the luxury of a negative pressure room. And, and to um, keep that in mind when you, and, and that our transportation is likely going to be delayed. Um, and maybe we may not also have access to a transport team for quite some time or the correct transport team that we normally would. Um, and keeping that in mind when you're making recommendations um, for, for our care. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Very, the one very, thing, yes, yeah, sorry. 
One, one thing that I, just looking at my notes, had uh, wanted to say and had not said is um, specifically around aerosol-generating medical procedures and with children who are treated with nebulizers. I think um, that there's, there's often a choice between a nebulizer and something else. Um, and I think to the, to the absolutely greatest extent possible, um, trying to use MDI for asthma patients, which is a general recommendation from pediatricians, but um, in particular, um, in, in this situation, I think trying to minimize nebulizer use to the greatest extent possible is one way to minimize aerosol-generating medical procedures. Very important point, because not everyone is protected. As Janet, as everyone is mentioning PPE, I just want to make sure we're all on the record. This is a personal protective equipment. I'm sure everyone knew that. It's just uh, that we're all on the same page. Uh, let me move on to the next question. This one um, asks about routine immunizations, and Matt, maybe I can ask you, are you continuing to routinely uh, provide healthy childhood immunizations, and would you use PPE for that uh, procedure? Matt? Sure. Well, I mean, um, I don't do primary care vaccinations because I don't work in primary care. So I have to say, again, that I'm appreciative of all my primary care colleagues that do continue to get vaccinations. Like I said, um, the CDC is recommending that vaccines are an essential service, so ideally vaccination would continue. I'll let Jeanette jump in in a second, but I guess just to say that um, they have like especially recommended that the 2- to 12-month vaccines, up into and including the first MMR and varicella vaccine, should be absolutely essential. And then if there need to be decisions made about prioritizing vaccines, they should effectively be made in reverse chronological order. So therefore, the um, adolescent kind of HPV vaccine schedule would be the first one to consider deferring, especially with schools being out of session. Um, and then moving back chronologically through HEP B, uh, through the um, uh, booster between four and six years of age, because that could theoretically be deferred until closer to six rather than being given at four. And then the last one to consider deferring being the 18 months. But again, that being said, um, in an ideal world, all vaccines would be considered essential. So I think that's something that we're probably going to be entering into a new phase, like Jeanette was saying, of our care of families during this COVID pandemic. And I think that it was appropriate to consider deferring them when there was a lot of uncertainty a couple of weeks ago. But as we move forward, I think they should start to be considered essential. Um, with regards to PPE, you know, I, I think different clinics have different practices. My understanding of the best evidence from the CDC, and I think um, I would encourage that the CDC website actually has quite comprehensive information for care providers. They may not have all the answers, but it has a lot of them. Their advice is that all providers, um, if you're ever looking after a patient with respiratory symptoms, should use droplet and contact precautions, so that eye protection, a mask, a gown, and gloves. I think the recommendations vary in terms of what PPE to be using for patients that have no symptoms, and so I don't want to necessarily give incorrect um, advice around that. I know that access to PPE is extremely variable, and that's the cause of a lot of stress for people, so I don't want to give a recommendation that might increase stress effectively. Um, but I think certainly if there's a patient with respiratory symptoms, contact and drop of precautions should be utilized. Otherwise, maybe follow the recommendations that are standard practice in your community of practice where you're working. Thank you very much. Jeanette, do you want to add to this from your perspective? 
Um, yes, and there was also another another question that had um, suggested that public health maybe wasn't doing routine immunizations, but um, I, I uh, asked around, and they they absolutely are. They have they have changed how they're doing it. So um, they are specifically spaced. They they've limited the number of clinics. They're spacing out the appointments, so there's no cross react cross to um, uphold social distancing. So there's usually a pause between each each family that's coming in. They do a phone call ahead of time, pre-screening. And if anybody has respiratory symptoms in the family, they are actually asking them to defer the, the 10 to 14 days um, until no, and, and not having anybody coming in that's symptomatic. Um, and that's more to protect the providers um, and, and maintaining that, that um, workforce than it is for, for the patients. Um, just from, from that social distancing, self-isolation perspective. Um, around PPE, I, I, I agree. Um, um, you know, different health authorities have different recommendations, and, and depending upon your access to PPE, um, it, it kind of seems like the default right now is if you have it, you're going to be wearing it, mostly, um, again, to... Um, there is some that perspective of protecting the healthcare providers um, and um, kind of just reinforcing uh, the importance of social social distancing. Um, I think as we become, become more familiar and um, more evidence around the prevalence, then, then that judgment would be there. But the, the default tends to be what, what is uh, standard of practice in your community. But absolutely, if anybody is symptomatic, it is the full droplet precautions. Um, N95 isn't necessary for anything other than aerosolizing procedures. Um, and just emphasizing the importance of uh, routine immunizations, don't forget them. They're important. They're essential is the underlying message, and you can do so safely um, is the other important critical thing to communicate to patients. Wonderful. Thank you. Before we move to the next question, uh, three quick things. One is to uh, mention that uh, we rely on uh, a lot of information coming from the Canadian Pediatric Society. Their website is www.cps.ca, as well as, as you heard, CDC and NIH uh, information that is available. Um, BCCDC also has a good website and many others as resources. The second point is that, um, as discussed earlier uh, in one of the questions, you probably know that you can call 24-7 BC Children's Hospital Emergency Department. There's always someone on call, one of my colleagues or myself, and there's always someone that can guide you even for a, a simple or a non-simple question. It doesn't have to be just when you want to transfer patients, but definitely when you think of transferring or uh, need support, that would be a, a call away when it comes to critically ill children. My third point before the next question is that we're approaching an hour on this webinar. Uh, it's been a lot of fun for uh, the panel and for myself, but if you have to leave, we completely understand. Um, it seems that uh, the panel is uh, available and will stay. We've got quite a few questions on Slido. Um, I, I'm sorting them out. Very good, very important questions, and we're going to continue to answer them. So the next question, uh, Susan, I think for you, information regarding immediate care of newborns that are born to COVID-positive mothers. What should uh, healthcare providers need to think about? Uh, please unmute. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, um, first of all, respiratory problems are common in newborns, and therefore think about non-COVID uh, reasons for the respiratory problems first. Um, th most likely, uh, they will not have a vertical transmission. It will be horizontal 
after delivery. Therefore, if a mother is uh, COVID positive and symptomatic, um, we do not in the nursery allow her to come in. And that's also for protection of other healthcare professionals as well as the baby. Uh, and so until she is not symptomatic, we are, we are saying that we do not want her in. Visitation has been changed in the nursery so that it's really only the two parents that can come in. And if there is um, just the mother and, and there is someone else that she will ask to come in if she cannot come in. Uh, but otherwise, uh, we're saying that if she's not symptomatic, yes, she can come in, but should be wearing a mask and uh, um, very good hand washing when she's uh, caring for the baby. And um, as far as, um, I'll just go on one uh, step beyond that, as far as going home. Um, if the baby is ready to be discharged, the baby can go home. There's no need to keep the baby in the hospital for a longer period of time because the mother is positive. If the mother is able to go home, um, she should. Uh, there should be the physical distancing uh, and precautions uh, continue to take place at home because the baby is definitely at risk for um, getting COVID-19. Great, thank you very much. Um, maybe follow up on this. There's a question here. Uh, Janet, maybe you can answer. What is the guidance on performing nasopharyngeal swab on a newborn in your practice, for example? That's you know, it's interesting. Um, the uh, I, w I was trying to find resources because uh, you know, in, in my community, it's typically the nurses that that do the swabs, and there wasn't a lot of information that I could find on on the appropriate tech techniques on a newborn, um, but, um, and, I, and I would uh, certainly defer to my um, neonatal colleagues if there's um, any, any other suggestions. Um, ultimately, it is so critically important to get a good sample and using, you know, with the, with the newborns, you, you do need to use that very small um, Copan swab uh, that will allow for that. Measuring from the tip of the earlobe to the base of the nose. Um, and then marking halfway on, on your swab, bending it a little bit to get the right angle and um, having, um, you know, either wrapping the baby in a blanket and, and having somebody secure the head, moving the swab in along the, the base of the, of the, the nasal pharynx until uh, you meet a little bit of resistance. It should only be about, um, or until you reach halfway on that swab with that measurement you have, and then that twisting for about 10 seconds um, in the newborn. Again, the indications really would only be um, with a COVID-positive mom. That is considered to be the um, the standard of care. Is that um, my understanding? The current guidelines will be to swab um, infants of COVID-positive mothers if they are symptomatic. If the babies are symptomatic, but it'll probably be for something other than COVID. But at least you have that information going on. Uh, we know there's very no evidence of vertical transmission. Horizontal transmission um, may be happening, but we probably wouldn't be seeing it until 24 or 36 hours with my, my latest information. And um, Dr. Alperson, if, if you have other things to add at that point. No, I, I agree with that. That's great. So uh, we, we covered the nasopharyngeal wash. There's a question here, maybe I'll try and answer. How early should we intubate children with COVID-19? Uh, so first and foremost, I'm happy to report that we uh, had to intubate patients, but they did not have 
have COVID-19. In general, I mentioned in adults, we're seeing a picture of rapid deterioration. This is not the reports we're hearing about pediatric patients. The very few reports that I'm aware of about intubating children had been uh, that have COVID-19 or were discovered later to be COVID-19 were not an urgent uh, resuscitation that needed an immediate intubation, which is uh, which is great news for for everyone, for the patient, their family, and for the healthcare providers. However, when you do intubate a patient or consider a patient that you don't know if they have COVID-19 or whether they were in contact, you have to use precautions. Uh, this is an aerosolized procedure, uh, and I can tell you that in hospitals, um, at least in, in the uh, lower mainland, uh, anesthetists are involved in those procedures. As few as possible healthcare providers are involved. You want to try and isolate whoever's the best intubator for that patient. Do it when you're uh, satisfied that everything is ready and you can intubate with first effort. Uh, as much protective equipment as possible is really important. Uh, guided uh, intubation with some visual is really uh, critical in this case. And if you have someone who is dealing with ICU or emergency pediatrics or anesthesia, this will be excellent if, if there is someone that can support you. So that would be uh, my, my response in regards to intubation. But uh, so far, generally good news about this. Uh, I'm going to uh, try and uh, continue here on Slido with uh, questions. Um, how, how do you safely uh, monitor pediatric patients with COVID-19 who are isolated at home? Um, Matt, maybe you, you're willing to take this. What, uh, what do you suggest to healthcare providers when it comes to isolating at home and safety monitoring of those children, um, whether they need oxygenation or not? Sure. I mean, I think that we don't probably have the experience. Like you mentioned, we haven't had any cases in children in BC, so I don't know that any of us will have had experience um, actually managing this situation. Um, my assumption would be that it would be similar to the way that we would manage a child with another viral syndrome who, you know, has an infection. Um, so, for example, a child with viral, bronch um, viral bronchiolitis will come to an emergency department, will determine that they have RSV, but if their stats are fine, we'll tell parents, you know, you can give them supportive care measures like antipyretics um, if they're um, indicated for comfort for the child, monitor their work of breathing, make sure they're able to feed and have enough fluids to still be voiding regularly. But I think those would be my major metrics. To my knowledge, there's no um, formal guidance on home oximetry monitoring in children. I know that's being used in the adult world, but I think that's mostly as a measure to mediate the number of um, potential admissions of adult patients to hospital. I think right now we're not in a situation where we're anticipating the number of pediatric COVID admissions to become so great that it's overwhelming our pediatric capacity. So I would say use your baseline clinical judgment. I don't, I have not heard of home oximeters being used in children. I think if you're concerned that a child is going to become hypoxemic, admit them and we're happy to have them down at children's. You can transfer them down to us. I'll, I'll say that on behalf of my colleagues. And um, I think Tom agrees. And, um, and if you think that the child looks great, don't send them with an oximeter, just tell parents to use their um, typical kind of common sense in terms of monitoring at home. Thank you very much. Let me move on. Um, I'm going to ask the next question, and maybe Tom can answer. Interesting question. Isn't the extent of positive tests uh, a little bit biased or biased by the fact that we only test uh, children that are symptomatic, and the, the 
person who posted the question suggests that in South Korea, um, there was a higher positive in adolescents when they just started more testing. What do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a really fair question and a totally fair question. I think, um, I think the, the ascertainment rate of every positive case in, in, in any geographic setting, potentially except for South Korea, they, they seem to test pretty much everyone multiple times. Um, the ascertainment rate is not perfect. So there are likely cases that are, are not picked up. Um, interestingly enough, one of, one of my colleagues uh, who is an infectious disease doc at uh, BC Children's actually had, while this was happening, sent to me a paper from a couple of days ago in which essentially 6% of the population of Iceland was tested, including children. And uh, there was actually a lower rate of COVID positivity amongst children under 10 than over 10 which I think it's one paper from one population, but seems to be, to me, a very important finding about what the prevalence rate is amongst asymptomatic children. There's a lot of theories about children as asymptomatic vectors and, and that sort of thing. And I think the, the answer is, I guess, the long answer is we don't, we don't know the true prevalence, um, but I think that the emerging evidence from that study is very informative to that question. And then secondly, I think, although we don't always know the um, the incidence of people who are out in the community. Our, our hospitalization rate is helpful, even in pediatrics. There is a higher hospitalization rate in places like New York City and Italy and China and that sort of thing. And the fact that we have had, um, the fact that we've had no hospitalizations, to my knowledge, in British Columbia is very informative because that, even if nothing else, is literally just a prevalence study because we're swabbing so many people, even at the point of, you know, there's children who might be getting an aerosol-generating medical procedure who have no symptoms and get a swab for, for a variety of reasons. And so that actually just gives us prevalence data. So, so the short answer is, of course, if you're not testing 100% of the population, then there's people out there who are probably positive who you, who you might not know about. Um, but I think, that, I think that it is reasonable in my mind to say that, the, that our transmission rate and our, our prevalence rate is probably not high um, in, in the pediatric community. Um, and, oh. uh, and, and so I, I think that's, that's what I would say is the long answer. So maybe a follow-up, because I see this coming a few times on the list, on the questions, uh, list of questions. Should we, testing, should we be testing all children admitted to the hospital unrelated to why they're admitted? So know if they have COVID-19. Is this something we do at, at your practice? So, um, no is, I think, the short answer. Um, I don't think that anything has changed in the testing criteria um, significantly in the last little while, although I would encourage everyone, and I do it every time I'm on clinical service, like I actually do do this, I review what the guidance is for testing, and you can go to the EPOPS website, which I mentioned, and you can go to the CDC website as well and get guidance who should be tested, because these things do change. Um, but my current understanding is that not every child needs to be admitted, sorry, needs to be tested who is admitted to hospital. And, um, we do apply very liberal testing criteria at BC Children's Hospital in terms of children who have mild illness or a fever that we think is from something else. We do generally still um, act conservatively and test them, and thus far all of them have been negative. Um, but um, 
I, I think that testing everyone who's admitted would, uh, would not be in, in line with our current criteria. And I can certainly uh, double check what today's criteria are um, and make sure that that's in the materials that are sent out. Great, thank you, Tom. Um, Janet, maybe I'll, I'll pass on uh, to you. And the next question is more in community uh, setting. In the outpatient clinics or uh, in the family doctor's office, if, there, if patients, young patients are with respiratory symptoms and for whom COVID-19 testing is not done, what should they do when they go home with those respiratory symptoms? What do you recommend to your patients? Um, it's sim similar for, for the ad adult patients, it would be that, that importance of self-isolating, even if we don't do the testing. Um, the self-isolation, we know self-isolation, hand-washing, cleaning all of your surfaces is, is what, what we're going to be doing to preventing. Um, Dr. Dr. Kamwana had mentioned sort of things and um, all of those important things in terms of observation. Um, but really, it, it is about reinforcing the importance of, of the the physical distancing and self-isolation for the duration of their symptoms um, primarily. And then also be looking for the, the other contacts in the home uh, because they may develop uh, symptoms later on as well. So you're going to be looking at the entirety of the symptoms or 14-day symptom-free. Thank you. Um, moving on maybe to treatment because I see quite a few questions on Slido uh, about uh, types of treatment. So maybe we can start with the first one. As, as People know uh, coronavirus is attached to uh, um, angiotensin uh, uh, converting enzyme receptors in cells. This is how the, the, the virus is, is working. So the question here uh, from uh, a, a member participating in the webinar is, what is the evidence regarding angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor uh, for infected children with COVID-19? Not sure who wants to try and answer this. I don't know the answer. Anyone uh, want to try that? I, I, I suspect that there is no evidence. Um, I, I, I don't know is, is the short answer. We use ACE inhibitors infrequently anyways in children. Um, so it's a very good question. Um, I, I, I suspect that there is no um, that, that there's no specific evidence for children, um, but uh, I mean, I think I think it would be very reasonable for us to do a quick search of the literature and send around to you anything that we find. Yeah, and do the search every day because there's tons of information appearing every day. Yeah. I we think just, in this I think in this case because it's yeah, I I think the question comes from the fact that in adults so many people are on ACE inhibitors, which I assume is still the case. Um, although I don't treat adults anymore, and um, I think that then the question is if, you know, 10% of your population takes the drug, then some of them are going to have COVID, and, and what do you do with that? And I think the reality is that there's a very small number of children who take ACE inhibitors, and then there's a very small number of children who have COVID, and um, if, you know, that very small overlap, whether there is a harm that comes to those children, I, I would guess that there's not enough information. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Tom. Um, few more questions and then if, if you're with us and you want to stay for a little bit longer, uh, the, man, the uh, panel will talk about the future. Well, I don't know if uh, everyone knows what the future is, but we'll answer some questions that I see here about where this is going when it comes to children and adolescents. So if you can spare 10 more minutes with us, and there are a few hundred people on this webinar, that will be the, the end of the, the session. But just a few more questions because there's a lot coming in. Um, the question is, 
what are the thoughts regarding shortage of medications for things like RSI? Uh, uh, the question is racuronium, ketamine, fentanyl, and propofol, uh, for, which are used to intubate patients. Well, the answer is that to the best that I know, at least as a clinical pharmacologist who's involved in our hospital, there is currently no shortage of medications for this use. However, this is a concern, uh, and it's true not only for drugs for RSI, because of supply chain, because where those drugs are being manufactured, uh, and because of limited uh, ability to transfer goods, there is a concern that there will be some shortage of specific medications. I must say this has not had happened since we went into closure because of COVID-19. I hope it doesn't happen, but uh, when, when it comes to RSI, I do not think, uh, at least in the pediatric practice uh, in BC, that there is an issue. Um, so, so that's the answer for that. Um, next one. Uh, what is the evidence behind COVID symptoms on blood group A that have less severe illness compared to group AB in children and adolescents? Um, who's going to be uh, the person to answer this? Matt, do you want to give it a try? I've never, I've never heard of that. I can't comment. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? No, I, I don't know either. I, uh, you know, every day you hear some uh, suggestions, rumors, uh, ideas. I am not aware of the literature as of yesterday, literature that suggests that, but that may be the case. Um, we're discovering new things about this condition in children and adolescents. Um, next question. Um, Let's see. Children uh, seems to have mild symptoms. Um, what is the reason? Okay, that, that's a great question. Why are we seeing? We, we all said that the symptomatology in children is mild. Well, one of the theories, and it hasn't been proven yet, uh, the idea is that children's immune system is less developed than in adults. What happens is that in the adult population, you see a, somewhat of an immune storm, a, a reaction that is quite significant in, in reaction to the infection with COVID-19 or with the coronavirus. Uh, one of the theories that was proposed is that the immune system is not as mature in the pediatric population, and maybe that's why they're not responding symptomatically as severe as adults. But I don't know that uh, this, this is exactly the case. Anyone else uh, in the panel wanna weigh in on why children are less symptomatic or less severe? I think whoever figures that out is looking for a Nobel Prize. That's a really good question, and I, I only thank my lucky stars every day that it's the case. I, I agree. Um, let me ask you one more question before we go to the final round. Um, uh, just appeared on Sligo. With grandparents uh, being caregivers within many families, um, is this the uh, option still considered an absolute no. So what about uh, grandchildren seeing their grandparents if they weren't isolating together um, or supporting the family uh, with the grandparents? How much isolation is still needed and what should we do? Janet, do you want to start taking this? That is such a good and complex question. Um, and I, and I think our, you know, I think it was, we're, we're becoming more knowledgeable about COVID. Um, it's, 
uh, I think we're, we're getting a bigger understanding. Um, you know, the, the guidelines are still isolation and protection of those who are more vulnerable. And um, I, I also think if um, there's a lot to be said for informed choice and looking at the concept of holistic risk as well. Um, and, you know, having those frank conversations with the families. Uh, we know, uh, particularly um, in, in our Indigenous populations, how important that, that broader social network is. Um, and in our immigrant populations, where they are so dependent upon the, those um, older, more vulnerable people. Um, and it may very well be having that really strong, you know, um, frank, informed choice conversation around the risks that are involved with that sort of um, approach and care. Um, and um, just reinforcing if they are doing that, that, that they then also social distance um, from others that are there. Um, ultimately, I think it needs to be, uh, uh, um, you need to be looking from that perspective of, of holistic risk over time, reinforcing um, what the guidelines are, um, and then supporting them to keep it as safe as possible. I, I'd Thanks. be curious what others others think, because um, it's it, it it's, it's really challenging. I think our families are going through so much right now, um, and, and we have to be looking at that, that entire like the entire entire concept of of health and wellness for them. Susan, a new baby in the family, grandparents want to hug and kiss and uh, be with them. What do you do? Um, I guess in the in the broader picture, I'm a bit concerned that um, people may misunderstand the flattening of the curve does not mean that we're over this completely. And I also am concerned that people will become a little bit blasé about it and that we may have another huge increase. And I also, because we just don't understand the pathophysiology, maybe there will be reinfections. Maybe the next time children will be more affected than they are this time because they're not naive uh, immunologically. So I think there's just so much unknown. I would be very concerned about, say, um, anything. Uh, I, I feel like I'm directed by... Dr. Henry, as far as where she thinks we should be going. And right now, I think we should stay the course. Thank you. Um, a question that uh, 11 of, of uh, those listening to the panel wanted to hear, what is the best way to safely accommodate newborn weight checks? Um, can these be done um, reliably by parents at home? Uh, Janet, do you uh, ask in your community for weighing babies at yeah. home? This is a really good question. Um, there are ways to, so holding the baby on a scale and then weighing yourself isn't going to be sufficient for the things that we're really worrying about. Um, you know, there, the, most of the family physician clinics, definitely the midwifery clinics have, have, have found ways to bring the, the families back safely um, to do those weight checks. Um, you know, you use your clinical judgment. You know, if it's a fourth baby, no problems breastfeeding her first, maybe they don't need that weight check. But, you know, definitely um, 
the majority of, of people, there should be some sort of weight check within the, the first week to 10 days of life, and definitely um, phone calls. Um, public health is no longer able, uh, able to do that, so um, it is so critical to do. Um, if you, you can do it at home, though, but it's in, um, if you have the right sort of scale um, and your, your index of suspicion is low, um, it does require, you know, you can use fish scales, you can use your, your um, you know, your Weight Watchers scale. <laughs> Um, that's if, if you have, if, it, if it's that close, if it's close enough, um, and you're, you know, you weigh on the first scale and then compare afterwards, uh, but it requires really close and, and conscientious follow-up with, with, a, with a healthcare provider to provide that guidance. Um, virtual care is something that's, that's available. Obviously, you can't weigh, weigh the baby, but you can have a look. You can watch a breastfeed. You, ha you can get a sense of like that, you know, it's not quite as intuitive as when you're in person with the baby, but is this baby look okay or not? Um, but I would not forgo weighing a baby um, um, within those, those first couple of weeks because of fears around COVID. It can be done safely, and it's really important to do. Wonderful. Um, while we are, while, while the panel is thinking about the last 30 seconds that each one of them will tell you where the future is with this pandemic, uh, another important question and topic is mental health during this pandemic. Uh, I assure you that uh, all, all panel members will provide references and websites to look at, so please come back um, to, to UBCCPD website in order to look at references and areas where you can learn about um, ways to support your patients and families of patients when it comes to mental health during this very challenging period. Um, there was a question about physical and verbal abuse that seems to be rising when we're all at home and where information can be uh, provided uh, for this. Um, you know what, Matt, uh, do you want to talk uh, about this? Where, where should uh, healthcare providers go, nurse practitioners, nurses, physicians, um, if they are hearing about abuse or challenges at home? Yeah, that's such an important question, so I'm glad that somebody raised it. Um, yeah, I think absolutely we know from experience that in times of acute stress, like this pandemic has caused, and families are forced to be home, um, rates of domestic abuse and abusive situations in the home uh, do rise. And I think the most important thing is for primary care providers to be aware of that so that they can screen for it in hopefully a sensitive and trauma-informed way with their clients. Um, because it really is our family physician colleagues that have relationships with people, with adults, where they can ask those types of things, like, how are things going for you at home? It's been really crazy for me. How has it been for you? What's changed in your dynamics at home? Like some of these gateway questions, and, and sometimes even maybe franker questions to find out. And I will say, um, from being in conversation with my colleagues that work in our um, suspected child abuse and neglect clinic at BC Children's, They've seen a dramatic drop-off in their referrals, which is concerning for them that there's a lot going kind of unheeded right now. So I think the main plea is please do ask, please do screen for it, and please do refer. Um, the ministry services that provide support for families are an essential service. They are open. The suspected child neglect clinics are open. Um, so please do ask, and, and please do refer appropriately. Thank you very much uh, for this. So here is the uh, promised end. I don't know if Dr. Bonnie Henry is one of those listening to this web, uh, webcast, but um, we're going to go through the panel to hear where you think this pandemic will end, at least when it comes to newborns, uh, pediatric, and adolescent patients. We'll go by the order we started. Uh, Dr. Tom McLaughlin, what do you think? 30 seconds. I think, um, I think that we're going to have a really interesting next few months and then few years in terms of 
figuring out how to continue to care for patients in the inpatient setting who have all the other stuff while still having the potential for COVID patients um, in the next in the next little while, even if we do flatten the curve, even if we decrease our prevalence, unless we've eliminated it as a world, which we're not going to anytime soon, then we're still going to have this potential thing hanging over us. And I think that'll be a really interesting thing and will be our main challenge for the future. Thank you very much. Dr. Matthew Caruana, Matt. You're muted, Matt. Sorry. Um, it sounds like my personal feedback for what I need to work on is that I need to touch my face less based on people um, texting me that feedback from home. So I, I appreciate that. Um, but in all seriousness, I think we are hitting an inflection point where it was appropriate a couple of weeks ago to put a lot of services on hold that support children and families because we were in a crisis, we were in a pandemic. I think what we need to work on for the next kind of one to two months is looking at with our new normal, um, how are we going to reopen services and provide kind of find a happy medium where we're supporting social distancing and policies that are going to keep our population safe. Um, but being mindful that population safety um, includes uh, maintaining essential services and ensuring that um, we're not leaving, like um, Jeanette was mentioning, a long wave of secondary impacts um, further down the road. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Susan Alpershine. I don't know, but I, I, uh, I'm hearkening back to what uh, Jeanette was mentioning in terms of um, extended family, in terms of the elders um, and their involvement. And I am a bit concerned that if you have, um, if that is, has been taken away, that uh, we may miss disease in some of these um, children who are being cared for often by first-time parents or young parents who really don't have much experience. And so I think we have to be um, probably ramping up what we can do or maybe uh, considering that more seriously in a holistic fashion because I I would hate to see that we're missing other treatable things when we are so concerned about uh, COVID. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Jeanette Boyd. Thanks. Um, yeah, so I reinforce that. I, I do think like that consistency of message um, around that, you know, using the, the CDC as the, the single source of truth, um, it needs to be reinforced. Um, the importance of that proactive outreach and anticipatory guidance for our families and the patients for all of those things that we're talking about, what we're, what we're anticipating in the future. We are going to be, it's going to be a new era of, of how we provide medicine and how we can optimize that in, in a meaningful and a holistic way. Um, and then the importance of validating and, and um, being kind to our patients and each other, validating what they're going through. It is so, it's hard to be a parent at the best of times. Um, it's even more overwhelming to be a parent right now and, and allowing people to have that and to reinforce that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to seek help. Um, virtual care is, is interesting and fascinating. Um, family physicians are really rising to the occasion. They are an amazing resource um, for, for people to turn to. Um, and over the next week or so, there will be more opportunities um, and more accessibility for, for some of these, these people that were worrying about falling through the cracks. Um, so stay tuned for that as well. 
Great, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll add my two cents. Uh, I'm optimistic about the future of this pandemic. I think it will pass. Uh, there may be a second wave. There may be issues that we need to deal with afterwards. But I think that uh, people in British Columbia and in general in Canada are quite receptive. And I think that at least in British Columbia, I, I feel optimistic that there is flattening of the curve. And uh, hospitals, healthcare providers like the few hundreds that participate in this uh, webcast are definitely um, addressing the issues and answering the needs of uh, families in safeguarding the health of children and adolescents in, in our province. So I'm very optimistic. I agree that there's going to be a change. We're not going to get back to what we had before. Virtual care, as you heard, is one of the improvements that may come to the health profession. And uh, the idea that uh, we as a community can go through a, a significant challenge like COVID-19 in itself is going to be some benefit in the end of the day. Uh, I'm worried, like many of you, about the now and the economic impact of this on families that we serve. But I, in the end of the day, I'm hoping that altogether we can improve the lives of children in British Columbia. So I want to thank so much uh, a few hundreds of you that joined us today and the panel that came and spent time thinking about those questions and answering them. And I'll pass on back uh, to Dr. Bob Blumen from UBC-CPD. And thank you again for allowing us to have this. Well, yeah, thank you, everybody. Um, yeah, there are so many more questions that you haven't had a chance to answer. So um, I love, I'm, I'm, I'm sure many who are on this, this, this webinar would love to continue hearing from you. And, and um, but we have to stop. We've reached the 90 minutes. Really appreciate you all seeing the extra 30. Um, and I, I really do want to express my sincere gratitude to the panel, uh, Drs. Ron Goldman, Tom McLaughlin, Susan Albersheim, uh, Matthew Carwana, and Jeanette Boyd, all who are, as you can see, are very dedicated physicians, excellent educators, and, and thank them for taking their time from their very busy lives. I, mean, I, I know they're all really busy trying to help in all kinds of ways here, and, and um, to, to be here tonight to answer your questions. And, I'm sure we all really appreciate it. I also want to give a big thanks to uh, Stephanie Miao, who, who is behind the scenes uh, supporting this from UBC CPD and made this possible, as well as thank all of you for attending. Um, I hope the session was of value to you, and, and, um, and I, I'd ask that you please take a few moments right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order to obtain study credits and also provide your feedback on tonight's webinar. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Ron Goldman has kindly agreed to, to provide a summary of what was uh, discussed, that highlights the key pearls of what was uh, discussed in the webinar tonight. And, and that will include uh, links to some of the resources, articles, um, et cetera, that, that were mentioned tonight. And so uh, thank you, Dr. Goldman, for, for offering to do that. And that should be sent to you uh, and, uh, along with the recording. Uh, and it will be on our website as well afterwards, along with all the other recorded webinars as this was in, the seventh in our series. Um, finally, I, I'd like you to know that we have, uh, you might want to know about and register for some other webinars we're offering over the next week in this uh, COVID-19 webinar series. Um, there is one coming up next Tuesday, April 21st, uh, 
looking at managing COVID emotions um, and uh, some of the mental health issues, uh, taking care of ourselves and each other, and obviously we're very relevant to, to pediatric and adolescent populations. Uh, and then we have another one coming up uh, a week today uh, on palliative care and, and against the other side of the spectrum, I think, you know, in terms of ma managing those, those difficult decisions and patients and who, who, you know, how, how you approach care in those uh, who get COVID uh, at, the, at that end of their lifespan, potentially. So, uh, so that's it for tonight. So, and and uh, thank you and uh, have a good night. Thanks for joining us. And I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's Metamorphosis spelled M-E-D. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 